1: From the newsroom of The Washington Post. Hi,
2: this is Vanessa Williams from The Washington Post. I'm Post. Hey, it's Philip Rucker at The Washington Post. Do you have a minute? Hi, this is Dan Zach. From- this is Post
1: Reports. I'm Lina Muhammad. It's Tuesday, March 23rd. Today, why the pandemic didn't stop gun violence. And the questions scientists are asking about the AstraZeneca vaccine.
3: Thank you for everybody being here today. Dozens of agencies continue to investigate yesterday's mass shooting at the King's Supers at 3600 Table Mesa Drive. The Boulder County Coroner's
2: Office... Shortly after 2.30 local time yesterday, a 21-year-old man who has now been identified as Maude Alyssa uh, walked into a grocery store in Boulder and uh, started shooting.
1: That is reporter John Woodrow Cox.
2: Very shortly thereafter, the police arrived and there was a gunfight. He was wounded. Um, a police officer was killed, as well as uh, nine other people. The
3: names of the deceased: Denny Strong, 20 years old; Nevin Stadinsky, 23; Ricky Odds, 25; Trelona Barkanoviyak, 49; Suzanne Fountain, 59. Terry Liker, 51. Officer Eric Talley, 51. Kevin Mahoney, 61. Lynn Murray, 62. Jody Waters, 65.
2: The suspect was taken into custody right about 3.30, and he's now been charged with 10 counts of murder.
3: None of them expected that this would be their last day here uh, on the planet. It's a simple run for milk and eggs, you know, getting ready to to shop, um, going in in a regular way. We all live our lives, something that we can all identify with, uh, led to a complete tragedy here today. And our hearts ache for those who lost their lives, for their families, for the survivors left behind, for uh, the survivors who were able to get out, who have scars that can't be seen but are every bit as painful.
1: John recently wrote a book about the impact of gun violence on children in America. He spoke with producer Renny Svarnovsky about the state of mass shootings during the pandemic.
4: I feel like for a while during the pandemic, it felt like maybe things like this had stopped happening. And then we saw these two high-profile shootings essentially happen back-to-back in Boulder, right, and in Atlanta. And so is it actually true? Like, have have large-scale shootings actually gone down this year? What have those numbers been like?
2: So it's hard to define mass shootings the way that the post defines them is four or more people killed, usually by a lone shooter. The post excludes things like robberies or domestic violence, uh, things like that. But according to that definition, there were only five last year, which was a significant drop off from 2018 and 2019 uh, when we saw, you know, two or three times that many and some very high profile school shootings, which. To be frank, is probably one of the primary reasons that we did see a drop off last year because schools were closed. You know, other reasons are it's hard to know uh, entirely why we saw those uh, drop offs. But certainly fewer people were gathering in large spaces than they had been, you know, in 2019, 2018 or any other time.
4: And then what about other gun deaths, things like suicides?
2: So that's the aspect of this that has been really overshadowed by the pandemic. 2020 was really the worst year in modern American history uh, in terms of gun violence. There were over 41,000 people killed. There were huge increases in uh, gun homicides. So some Mm. examples in Milwaukee, it doubled between 2019 and 2020. They went from about 80 to about 160 Houston went from around 230 to 350. In Chicago in 2019, there were around 450 people killed in uh, gun homicides. That number went to nearly 700 in 2020. Mm -hmm. So this got, frankly, very little coverage last year, I think because of the election, because of the pandemic, because people maybe could only sustain so much misery and and negative news. But we also did see uh, increases in suicide as well. So, you know, people are just sort of waking up to this now because these tend to be the shootings that we pay attention to. But this never went away.
4: And then back to Boulder. I know that the city tried to ban assault weapons in 2018 as a way to prevent mass shootings like, you know, what happened that year in Parkland, Florida, where 17 people were killed by a gunman at a high school. But then there was a three year legal battle over that ordinance. And then a little over a week ago, a judge struck down that ban on rifles like AR-15s. As someone who's done so much research into gun violence and assault weapons bans, do we find that they work?
2: So this is always a tough question to answer. Uh, There are some studies that suggest they make a difference, but uh, the truth is it's hard to know conclusively what effect they have because the United States has spent just an abysmal amount of money studying gun violence for the past two decades. So Mm. in the 1990s, there was a lot of controversy over the CDC studying gun violence. And Mm -hmm. there was a man by the name of Jay Dickey who proposed an amendment that said the CDC could not use basically taxpayer money to study gun violence for any sort of political purposes. And what this did, it had such a chilling effect that it, it effectively ended all gun violence research for, you know, two decades. And that has had just a devastating effect on any kind of progress we can make. Because if you, you know, Rand, the Rand Corporation has done some really good research into what works and what doesn't work, but they struggle often to say, definitively what works because there just isn't enough research out there. So only in the last couple of years has Congress finally said, "Okay, we're going to invest in this again," but the investments have been mostly symbolic. I mean, we should be spending hundreds of millions of dollars on this research every year. We would know so much more about gun safety. But, you know, the NRA and the gun lobbyists uh, didn't want that from the very beginning. They fought that from the start. And that lack of information, that lack of knowledge has in some ways put us in the place that we're in today. What we can say for sure is that a shooter can do considerably more harm with a semi-automatic rifle equipped with an extended magazine than they can with a handgun that fires eight or ten rounds. So with only one or two exceptions, the worst mass shootings in modern U.S. history were committed with these sorts of rifles.
4: What does the political will or the national appetite look like for gun control legislation?
2: And in, in 2018, it was enormous. You know, people who were polled, this was one of their top two or three issues. The pandemic has obviously consumed everyone's life. And the election last year did that as well. But people's appetite for change has not gone away. So the gun legislation that's currently in the Senate, those are two extremely popular bills. One is to impose universal background checks so that any gun that's sold, you have to check someone's background for it. Another is to close a loophole that allows people to purchase guns before their background check comes back from the FBI. These are both mm-hmm. widely popular, even in very conservative gun-supporting states, and yet it's going to face an uphill battle in the Senate. And you, know, you can only conclude that's because of the gun lobby, because the constituents of these Republican senators say Overwhelmingly, we want this legislation. The senators show up to Capitol Hill and say, uh, "I'm going to vote no on this."
4: I know you recently wrote a book about what growing up in this culture does, specifically to children. I guess in in doing all the research for that book, what did you what did you learn?
2: So you know, with these sorts of shootings, we often only think of the adults involved the the reach of gun violence in this epidemic is so much farther than anyone understands. And it's way beyond classrooms, right? It's way beyond school shootings. You know, we have lockdowns in schools uh, that do enormous damage to kids' psyches. Not just lockdown drills, but millions of kids go through lock, actual lockdowns every year where they think, I might get shot in my school. Beyond that, you know, there was research done in Chicago that showed when there is a homicide in a kid's neighborhood, their test scores drop. The next week. What we're seeing in Colorado will will affect a huge number of people. So the families of those people, the, the, one, the one person we really know much about right now is the officer. He had seven children. Those are often just passing references that we see in these stories. We'll see father of two, mother of three. Those kids are going to live with this forever. Their friends are going to live with this forever. They are absolutely victims of gun violence.
3: No no it's it's, uh, it's hard it's challenging That's um, Boulder Police Chief
1: Maris Harold. She personally knew the officer who was killed while responding to the shooting.
3: Yeah, I feel numb. Um and it's heartbreaking. It's heartbreaking to talk to victims, uh, their families. Um you know, it's tragic. This officer had 7 children ages five to 18. I just had that officers whole family in my office two weeks ago to give him an award. And so it is personal. This is my community. I live here. And to have something like this happen so so close to where you live and and to know the fear in the community and to know that the officers sacrifice themselves It's heartbreaking.
2: This happens somewhere every day. Someone's life is being lost to a gun every hour of every day, every minute of every day on some days. So it's a crisis that that 41,000 number doesn't even begin to encapsulate, nor does the 10 dead in Colorado come close to capturing.
1: Cox is an enterprise reporter for The Post. He's also the author of the book Children Under Fire, An American Crisis. It's out next week. He spoke to Renny Svonofsky, who also produced the story.
5: There's still a great deal we don't know about the killer and the motivation of the killer in Boulder, Colorado, and other critical aspects of this mass shooting.
1: On Tuesday afternoon, President Biden addressed the Boulder shooting. In a statement, he called for more legislation on gun control.
5: While we're still waiting for more information regarding the shooter, his motive, the weapons he used, the guns, the magazines, the weapons, the modifications that apparently have taken place to those weapons that are involved here, I don't need to wait another minute, let alone an hour, to take common-sense steps I will save the lives in the future and to urge my colleagues in the House and Senate to act. We can ban assault weapons and high capacity magazines in this country once again. I got that done when I was a senator. It passed. It was law for the longest time. And it brought down these mass killings. We should do it again.
0: Sadly, the AstraZeneca soap opera continues.
1: William Booth is the London bureau chief for The Post. He has a background in science reporting, and he's been covering the rollout of the AstraZeneca vaccine in Europe.
0: Yesterday, Monday, we heard that it was 79% effective against symptomatic COVID, which was great. And then today, there was an independent panel that advises the NIH.
1: That's the National Institutes of Health.
0: Which oversees clinical trials which said that early result from yesterday was possibly misleading or they had used outdated data. And so that raises some doubts that the 79% effective figure is correct. So we are kind of waiting to learn more.
1: What I don't understand is why weren't these concerns like flagged earlier? Like, did they see any warning signs before?
0: Yes. So it's a tricky situation in the sense that the the clinical trials are going on and they're producing results. Some people get COVID, some people don't get COVID. They inject this many people and the, the clinical trials roll on. So there wouldn't be really anything to see like early on. the The problem appears to be once they release the data, to AstraZeneca and Oxford, that AstraZeneca and Oxford took these numbers and concluded that their vaccine was 79% effective. What the oversight committee, the, the independent panel that reviews and monitors this stuff, seems to be telling us is that maybe that's too optimistic. Maybe they over the pudding, as they would say in Britain.
1: And so the independent, like the oversight committee, what is it saying about the efficacy rate of, of the, the vaccine now?
0: Well, they're not really concluding what it is. They, I think they're just more stating that the AstraZeneca one appears to be over-optimistic, but they are suggesting that maybe the vaccine, instead of being 79% effective overall, is something like 69% or 74% effective, which is pretty... Darsh gun good numbers for a vaccine. And so, you know, Tony Fauci was telling the Washington Post today and telling the broadcasters today that
2: this is really what you call an unforced error, because the fact is, this is very likely
4: a very good vaccine.
0: And he didn't quite understand why AstraZeneca might have exaggerated or, or took their data in the best possible light.
1: Why would AstraZeneca do that?
0: So, if the company, AstraZeneca and Oxford, tried to put it in the best possible light, but it was just slightly, slightly less good than they asserted yesterday, why would they want this kind of a bungle where people are questioning, you know, how good really is it and and can they believe the data? A lot of the problem with this is that these initial results are produced in press releases and interviews. And so a lot of scientists don't really have really good eyes on the data, on the whole data set, the big old pile of data. So they're just looking what the company says in, you know, 10 paragraphs. And um, you know, a lot of people say that's not the best way to conduct this this kind of science.
1: Hmm. I just want to point out that this this doesn't mean that people shouldn't be getting the AstraZeneca vaccine, right? Is that correct?
0: Well, uh, I'm not the one to tell people what to do or not do. But I mean, I think that's completely the position of the British health regulators and the European ones. The vaccine has not been approved yet in the United States by the FDA for emergency use. But the the thinking yesterday was that AstraZeneca would apply for emergency use authorization in the next few weeks. So. The U.S. government has bought 300 million, and I'll repeat that, 300 million doses of this vaccine pre-ordered. Uh, so I haven't actually bought it yet, but pre-ordered. And so this was going to be one of the four vaccines probably used in the United States or likely. Now that's a little a little up in the air. Hmm.
1: It, it, it seems like the, the AstraZeneca vaccine from the beginning, like its rollout has been just fraught with problems. Can you walk me through some of these issues that this vaccine has specifically faced starting when it, you know when they first announced it in in Britain?
0: AstraZeneca's had a number of problems. One of the first things they did is they kind of boldly said that they would have a vaccine very early on and and that it would be successful and that that raised some eyebrows in the scientific community. Then they did clinical trials in Britain and South Africa and Brazil. And in those clinical trials, they didn't include really very many elderly people. And so there wasn't enough elderly people, older people to say whether the vaccine was efficacious in the over 65 groups and that was important because that's the exact group you want to protect most and then there were some other problems with whether they gave people half dose or full dose or whether you should take it f- at four week intervals so you get a first jab and then you wait four weeks or 12 weeks so that was a question so they've had all these little little problems like this so it's it's been the, the least smoothest running successful Vaccine so far. In fact, last week, a number of European countries, big ones, uh, France and Germany and Italy, suspended the uh, deployment of the AstraZeneca vaccine over concerns about these kind of rare blood clots that they they were seeing in some patients. Uh, some uh, you know some people had received the vaccine, and the European Medicines Agency looked at this and concluded that the vaccine was still uh, safe and effective and that though there were concerns about some of these clusters of clots, that it wasn't enough to outweigh the risk-benefit analysis. So they decided to go forward. The link between AstraZeneca and these blood clots has certainly not been proven yet, but it was like a concern. So it it made the Europeans pause and that pause continues in some of the Nordic countries.
1: So, so we just talked about, you know, uh, some of the issues that this vaccine has been having. What are sort of like the, the good things about this vaccine?
0: Some of the great things about this vaccine is that it it works. Right. Uh, it works well. The, the initial cutoff point was it has to be vaccines had to be better than 50 percent. Well, this one has been 60, 70 percent, uh, maybe even higher. It's cheap. It's four dollars a dose and it's very transportable you can move this vaccine around with confidence as long as you put it in an ordinary refrigerator or cooler so so this vaccine does not require sort of precious handling you don't need to get it at a hospital you can get it in an ordinary doctor's office or a rural clinic you know anywhere in the world so so that's good and they promised they would make three billion doses of it. And that's a lot of doses, you know, <laughs> that that gets the vaccine out in the world. So, so those are some good things about it. The AstraZeneca and Oxford team suggested that this would be the vaccine, quote unquote, for the world. This would be the, the, the most ubiquitous vaccine out there because of its cost and its and, it, and the way it could be delivered. So that was the promise and the hope of this vaccine. It's had a lot of setbacks, though.
1: So with all of these setbacks and all the concerns that keep arising, where does AstraZeneca stand now?
0: Well, where does AstraZeneca stand now? AstraZeneca is kind of a bit like a boxer that keeps taking hits, but they keep making these sort of public relations missteps. And maybe what happened today, you know, with the questions from the the independent monitoring review board is just another one of those. But the concern of people who who want the most people vaccinated is that something like this undermines trust in the vaccine. And if it undermines trust in the AstraZeneca vaccine, it probably undermines trust in other vaccines. And the people who are running these campaigns to get as many people vaccinated as quickly as possible think of these things as sort of bad news. It's like this is a bummer. This is not good. It makes people who are on the fence for reasonable, rational reasons have another think and not go. And get their their shot, so so that's that's a big thing.
1: William Booth is the London Bureau Chief for the Post. Jordan Marie Smith produced the story. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. Renice Vernofsky and Rina Flores mixed today's show. We're looking for stories about upcoming reunions after vaccination. Are you about to see your grandparents for the first time in over a year? Are you finally going back to your hairstylist? Is she going to see that you've dyed your hair purple, then pink, then green, like I have? We'd love to hear from you. Send a voice memo or an email to postreports at washpost.com telling us about your upcoming reunion, or better yet, record it. You can use the Voice Memo app or take a video on your phone and email that to us too. I'm Lina Muhammad. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post. The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories.